Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 21 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Simon Rewadi, the CEO and founder of Slyletica, a fashion agency that grew 115% last financial year to do over $2 million in annual revenue. We discuss how despite 10 years of work towards becoming national sales manager, he quit his dream job to run an inspirational Facebook page despite it generating no money. We cover how multiple pivots and experiments enable them to become a fashion agency for gyms, athletes, influencers and celebrities who want to create custom-designed activewear. Hear how they now serve 100 plus clients in more than a dozen countries and became the fastest growing fashion business in Australia. If you're looking for custom designed activewear manufacturing and brand development services, check out slyletica.com. That's S L Y L E T I C A.com. Hello, I'm here with uh, Simon Rewadi, the CEO and founder of Slyletica. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, so can you tell us what were you doing before you started Slyletica? What sort of jobs were you working in before? What industries? What did you study? Uh, yeah, so before we started Slyletica, I was actually um, in a completely different industry, not in fashion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, I was working as a... Uh, my last role was actually a... Um, uh, sales manager mm-hmm. for a property development firm and um, prior to that I was uh, in house and land sales and prior mm-hmm. to that I was in property management and uh, property uh, uh, property yeah property management and relationship sort of uh, building with investors and landlords and things along mm-hmm. those lines uh, and prior to that I was in a pizza shop so uh, very very interesting sort of career path over, mm-hmm. over the sort of 10 years while I was uh, working in the employment sector, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, very various and, and lots of different roles. So, sort of work in food hospitality when you were growing up, and then real estate was your first main sort of professional job. Yeah, so I guess I had a passion for real estate very, very early on. Um, when I was seventeen and still mm-hmm. at university, I managed to, whilst I was uh, studying. Um, a Bachelor of Marketing mm-hmm. um, at Bonnish University also managed to pop out and do my real estate agent's uh, representative course, which was only a couple of weeks back then. Um, so it was obviously a passion of mine. Um, didn't actually do anything in the real estate industry um, for a number of years uh, after I did that course, but it was an early on passion. Um, whilst I was studying at university, I sort of joined 
uh, a local pizza shop and mm. ended up being there for for some time mm. um and you know worked there part uh, casually their part time then full time and kind of trying to find my feet and trying to mm. figure out what I wanted to actually do I uh, never completed the uh marketing degree mm-hmm. at university I was actually only there for about 6 months and mm-hmm. before I kind of realized it wasn't really uh where my passion lied and didn't really see how it was going to benefit me um personally so mm-hmm. I decided to leave that and and sort of ended up going back to studying a um advanced diploma of business management just to have something underneath my belt but mm-hmm. uh whilst I was trying to sort of trying to figure out what I was trying to do um you know you're going to go back 10 15 years ago now so stretching <laughs> my memory but uh I, you know had a number of odd jobs yeah. like sales jobs door to door sales mm-hmm. um uh, customer service on the phones with you know telco companies mm-hmm. um I, I just sort of call center jobs here and there mm-hmm. but but in hindsight those roles really helped me sort of establish my customer service skills and my speaking skills and and my sales skills early on uh, when I was 17 18 19 um and sort of skills that I kind of kept through my entire career so very grateful for those opportunities yeah and then so then at a certain point you pushed I mean came back to interest in real estate and then transitioned and started working like I said odd jobs different jobs well you started figuring out and then real estate became sort of the the absolutely yeah definitely so I kind of got over the whole pizza shop odd jobs you know I was working (laughs) three jobs at at one particular point so just so I could um you know, really kind of make a lot of money as you do when you're, mm. or make some money, sorry, um, as you do when you're kind of that age. Um, I'd been saving in the background for a, for a car, mm-hmm. uh, to buy a car. And, uh, I actually, uh, got some great advice from my dad at the, uh, at that time. And, um, uh, instead of purchasing a car, I went and bought, and bought a home. So I actually mm. bought my first home, uh, was 18 and nine months when I purchased my first oh, wow. property. Um, and, uh, and that was generally because I'd managed to save enough to, like I said, I was in sales roles and doing door to door. And so I did okay with those roles. And, mm. um, instead of buying a car, I went and purchased my first home and that kind of reignited the whole spark for real estate again. Mm-hmm. And, um, but shortly after that, I decided to start applying for real estate roles. Um, the only role I could get, which, uh, was a property assistant role um for a company which specialized in property management at the time mm-hmm. uh so started off with property assistant and and sort of over the next five years with the same company as they grew um built up from property assistant to sort of property manager uh, through to a relationship manager through to ended up being a office manager running uh, a number of staff for them um you know with a quite a large property management portfolio in that in that office so uh, over five years, built mm-hmm. up a career in the same company and really learned a lot while I was there. Um, made up some amazing connections with the CEO and, and sort of the, the sort of the exec team mm-hmm. at that business and was very lucky to and fortunate to be part of that company, which was a, a scale up company, mm. so to speak. So they went, you know, from strength to strength to strength. Um, and so there, that was kind of a bit about the, the start of, of my career, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Five years in after office manager, I, um, decided that it was time to sort of leave, uh, that particular firm and that particular organization and, and move into something, um, new, still mm-hmm. within the uh, sort of real estate industry, but move to uh, house and land sales. So uh, I'd never really utilized my sales skills or, or I, I did, but not in the sense where, um, you know, I was really able to generate large amounts of commissions and things like mm. that. So I wanted to test myself in, in that area and move to house and land, um, with a prominent Victorian, 
uh, builder mm-hmm. and I uh, was there for about a year and a half and did extremely well, very happy with all the results that I did there. Um, maybe actually a bit more than a year and a half, but um, whilst I was there, I had an idea to, or initial inkling to um, start something for my own. And it was kind of the first uh, suggestion of turning into an entrepreneur sort of internally in, in my own thoughts and just started developing an idea in my mind and sort of started thinking to myself, well, what could it look like if I if I was going to start something of my, my own? And, and funnily enough, I didn't look to real estate um, to do that. Um, at the time, there was a lot of people kind of opening their own businesses mm. in that real estate industry or, or shouldn't really call it real estate, probably more property marketing mm. um, uh, industry, but uh, it didn't really kind of excite me to do something um, of my own in that in that field just yet. And so um, I, I had a natural instinct to fitness and, and natural love and passion for um, the fitness industry, mm. you know, having uh, been going to the gym since I was 17 year old, mm. years old and constantly training and, and that really taking a big aspect of my life, training twice a day at some time. So mm. a big part of my just normal personal life was being in the, in the gym. Um, and whilst I was there, I heard a, a, a couple of guys just chatting away, talking about the results that they weren't getting. And, and, uh, it was funny just sort of sitting on, on, on the bench at the gym. I thought to myself, well, if you actually shut the fuck up and started training, <laughs> and those are the specific words I said to myself, um, yeah. and started training, you might see some results as opposed mm. to kind of, um, just kind of whining and whinging away at the gym. And, uh, that without me really realizing it, um, was the very first time I started thinking about what a brand would look like if I started a active wear label. Mm. Um, and we didn't really action it for a very long time. It was just a thought that I had in my head while I was still doing full-time work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, a few sort of six months into thinking through that, I approached uh, my best friend at the time, who's who's yet a Rawadi now, so my wife now, <laughs> uh, but my best friend at the time, she was heavily into fashion and, mm-hmm. and you know, she'd come out of a, a software development career with IBM and, mm-hmm. and a number of large firms and, and sort of um, in fashion at, at the time. Uh, I was in fitness at the time, and so we, it, it, the question was, "Hey, would you like to start an, you know, an, an active wear brand together?" Mm. Um, this was probably seven years ago, six, mm-hmm. six years ago f- from now, um, and and we actually spent twelve months trying to figure out what that w- would even mean. Mm. Um, you know, how do we go online and and all of these sort of things that. Um, you know, Instagram wasn't really a thing back then. So all of these things that we were just trying to figure out, it was, it was a question. We started a uh, Facebook page mm-hmm. um, that was called STFU and Get Fit. Um, so STFU meaning shut the fuck up. So the, the, we ended up calling it STFU, uh, which wasn't great in the long run um, and not something that really uh, worked well for us. But um, it was a start. It was the beginning. Mm. We built a, a Facebook page page uh, we built a community on facebook up to about ten thousand followers before we even launched the brand and um shortly afterwards we uh started kind of working together on um uh, finding apparel you know working with overseas manufacturers mm-hmm. figure out how to build a logo figure out how to do a website all of this crazy stuff while we were still working full-time mm-hmm. um around about the same time that that sort of hadn't launched yet but was about to launch um i was offered a, a um state sales manager role with a large property development form, firm, uh, which I, I accepted. Uh, my whole sort of career in that sort of sales, real estate, property marketing space was to become a national sales manager. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. It had always been my goal. Um, 
Uh, and so I, I thought this was a really good stepping stone to kind of do that whilst I had this brand sort of tracking away, not really making money in the background, not ready to launch, but building into a community and building up our following and building people really interested in what we were doing. Um, the idea behind the brand itself was about being motivational and inspirational mm-hmm. for people. It mm-hmm. wasn't about yelling them and telling them to shut up and do things. <laughs> it was about inspiring them to kind of do more and, and, and be more. That was essentially the idea of the brand when we launched it or when we thought of the idea. So you're putting content on the Facebook page, people are um, sharing it, liking it. You're, yeah. like I said, building that community. But at that point, there was no product. It was just content, motivation, community, creating exactly that right. awareness around the name and the... Exactly right. The right people. Yeah, so we were posting lots of motivational quotes, lots of lots of videos. We actually made a video, but no product at all. It was purely for a good year, year and a half, about building a community and mm. building a following. Um, we had, you know, like I said, about ten thousand people on Facebook page, which back then was actually significant. Mm. Um, you know, right now, you know, my little cut fourteen year old cousin has twenty thousand followers, <laughs> but back then it was quite significant, yeah. and um, we uh, and we got lots of traction from really built a community around that sort of SCFU message, so mm. to speak, um, before we had products or anything along those lines. Um, was offered this role at this uh, property development firm. I decided to take it on board. Um, unfortunately, the role I was only there for about six months. The role itself was wasn't very stimulating for mm-hmm. me. It was quite easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, decided about six months in that I was probably going to leave and put as much as possible into this brand. Um, within those sort of six months, I was in the the sales manager role. I um, uh, we had launched the product, um, and it was a there was a number of challenges with bringing a product to market. Um, at the time, we we'd been working with China. Um, we were learning lots about China, how all of those sort of things work, mm-hmm. how to actually develop a product, how to design a product, websites, logos, everything, um, and it was such a massive challenge for us. Um, but we brought a product to market. We actually did um, quite successfully with our initial drop um, to start off with, mm-hmm. but had a lot of returns because of quality problems. Um, and that was purely... And this was like active wear, like gym yeah. shirts, gym pants, like short, um, yoga pants. What was the it was first product? It was definitely in that active space. Mm-hmm. Um, our first products were singlets, hoodies, um, yeah, uh, various colors of singlets. Um, I think we had some track pants and some leggings. Mm-hmm. Um we actually sold a fair amount of leggings mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, only to find that they had a quality issue and tore straight down the middle of, oh, the, wow. of the pants. And, <laughs> and so we had a lot, a lot of customers sending us photos of um, some leggings that had some, you know, torn right down the back of them as they were doing squats. So it wasn't great. Um, and interestingly enough, we didn't go for cheap quality. We went for mm. premium quality. These weren't cheap goods at all. Mm. Um, we just had no idea what we were doing when it came to dealing with China um, and bringing in a product and, and testing for quality and, and making sure samples actually matched your bulk production. Mm. It was a massive um, challenge for us. So, mm. uh, so the sales side in terms of people in your community that liked you, wanting to buy, support you, buy your products, that was obviously very successful, a lot of momentum, but the fulfilment, delivery, quality... And product side. Uh, product side yeah. is actually what sort of let you down at the early stage. Let us down, definitely. Um, I thought at the time that, you know, it was uh, a lessons learned mm-hmm. and, and we obviously tried to do everything we can to, to mitigate those risks and things along those lines, but... At the time, we thought, you know what, it's got to be, it, we've got to do this 
full time. Um, and so I decided to resign from my full time job and, and move into working into this business um, and really kind of just throwing the bag over the fence, so to speak, and, and just giving it everything um, and not really having a plan B, not really generating enough money from the business to actually leave a full-time job or anything along those lines, but just went for it, took the leap and decided to give it give it our all. And, and so you weren't super happy with your sort of your day job. And obviously, um, again, there was still some, hic- some momentum in the, the sort of the side hobby at that point. But what, was there something that made you sort of pull the trigger? And Yeah, actually, it's a really great question. We... Um, uh, I was actually offered the role that I'd been working for mm. towards 10 years. Uh, so for the last 10 years, I'd been or, or uh, building this sort of career to become a national sales manager role. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as I resigned, you know, I had a really great discussion with the, with the CEO and, uh, at the time and, and, uh, they called me back and said, Hey, look, if you decide to stay on board, this is where, this is where we'd like to see you. And it was that national sales manager role. Mm. Um, and so I had this sort of, defining moment in my life where it was kind of uh, at a point where you go down two different paths and it would lead to two different life uh, uh two different types of life and mm. lifestyles for you and, and it was quite interesting i actually reached out to the ceo of my first job um at property management mm-hmm. um i had i like i said earlier on i'd built a great a connection with 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 the exec team and the ceo at the time and so i reached out to him and just asked to go for coffee and sat down with him and i said hey i've got uh, it's interesting i've been working my butt off to get to this mm-hmm. sort of offer of this national sales manager role and now that i have it i'm not even sure if i want to if i want to continue down that route i've got this idea in my head we've started this brand it's by no means making us any money but i'm quite passionate about running the brand and, and kind of really want to see where that can take me and and the piece of advice he gave me that changed everything for me was don't worry about today where do you see your life five years from now um what he meant by that was what what do you see yourself doing on a day-to-day basis five years from today um and he goes is it are you driving to you know this sort of national sales manager role or imagine where that role would eventually take you you know you might be a sales director or whatever it might be are you driving to work every day to work in this role, building a team, helping this organization grow, or if, if it's not that organization, another one, or are you kind of running this fashion brand? Um, he goes, do an exercise and write down what your ideal average day looks like five years from today. How do you make money? All those type of things. And um, he goes, be as specific as possible. So I went home and I did that exercise and essentially wrote down what my life looked like five years from that point in my life. And I remember specifically writing down um, that I uh, look after a empire of online businesses um, from what we call the what I call the entrepreneur hub mm-hmm. in our in my in my writing. That's mm-hmm. what I called it. And today, what we do uh, every single day is is help people build and, and manage their own online businesses. Uh, so it's quite interesting, you know. Be careful what you wish for because mm. it might come true. But it made it very clear for me that my path was not to accept the role, but to then take the leap and start and continue running this own activewear brand. Um, it was quite interesting that uh, my idea was that I would start this activewear brand. I wanted to, I wanted the idea of that online business, you know, independent uh, location, independent sort of business. Mm-hmm. Um, and my idea was to have sort of five to 10 of these brands that I would own and manage myself. 
um, and be able to sort of travel the world and, and do a whole bunch of different things. Um, that was kind of the concept of the online businesses. Um, interestingly enough, it's not where it turned out to be, but it turned out to be so much better than that. Mm. But uh, there's a great saying that if a friend of mine, uh, Calvin Coyle, says, go as far as you can see and when you get there, you'll be able to see even further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that at that point, that's all I could see is kind of didn't really understand, but it really helped me understand how to make a decision on which way to go. Um, I got clear on that sort of five-year direction, decided that, well, I need to start making the decisions today to put me towards that path and, and that decision was to leave full-time work and, um, yeah, just dedicate myself to the business. Yeah, and, and so you made the decision, like you said, you, you did a lot of uh, thinking and writing and talking to people you um, respected to, to make the, the clarity in the decision and then you headed down the path. So sort of what happened next? You've given up the, the paycheck and the, yeah. the stable job. You've got, again, a good bit of um, momentum bubbling away on the Facebook page. Things happening, but obviously a lot of headaches, problems, figuring exactly. it all out. Yeah. What was that first 12 months after um, going full <laughs> Absolute nightmare. Not something I'd recommend for anybody. If you would ask me today you know what i would do differently i'd probably stay in my job or get a part-time job or some form of cash flow um until the uh, business until your business makes money uh, business yeah. not, i mean we were making two two to five hundred dollars a month you know mm. from the business and for me to leave my job i was lucky in the point where i had um some income still coming in from commissions that were payable. So mm-hmm. in the property industry, you would make a sale, you might not get paid all those commissions for, uh, uh, six, until six months later. Mm. So I was lucky that I knew I had would have occasionally some income coming in. Mm. Um, but I just went all in. Uh, and to be honest, it probably... Uh, cause a lot more stress, panic attacks, and <laughs> anxiety, the yeah. works, you know, yeah. because you put everything on the line. I, at this point, had amassed three properties under my name, so I had three mortgages mm. uh, to pay off, and um, it wasn't the kind of thing where it, it was either sink or swim. I was going to mm-hmm. lose everything or I was going to make it, basically. Um, and so, you know, at that point, I started learning as much as possible about this whole entrepreneurship. I took courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I did self-development courses. Um, I did public speaking courses. I then um, uh, did an online course, um, which actually helped change a lot of things for me. So it taught me how to build a website properly. It taught mm. me about conversions. It taught me about Facebook marketing, Instagram marketing, all of these things. Instagram was just starting to come up. Mm-hmm. Um and so I decided to that I needed a business that would actually make me some money um, mm-hmm. as whilst this other business sort of in the background uh, was building the, the, the apparel side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did two things. One, I decided, well, I've got to use my skill set to sell our clothing. Mm-hmm. And my skill set was um, not necessarily online sales at that particular point in time. My skill set was offline sale, mm-hmm. meet, meeting people face-to-face and, and selling them a product. Mm. My product was apparel, so it was very hard to knock on people's doors and sell mm. them a single it. Yeah. <laughs> so what I decided to do was start to walk into um, gyms. Mm. So I had a bag of samples. I would walk into a gym. I uh, would ask to speak to the gym owner and, and basically show them our, prop, our product, which was a great quality product. By this point, we'd learned to mitigate a lot of those risks and challenges from, the, from a quality perspective. Um, so we were getting good, good quality products in. Um, and I would sit down and I would show them our apparel and I would ask them if we could leave our apparel at their reception space and we would offer them a 5 or a 10% commission based on the sales we made for the week. And so it was a good little revenue stream for the gym. Um, but also it meant that we could put our product directly in front of people in a physical location 
um, whilst our online and whilst we were trying to figure out how to build an online business, basically, and, mm. and generate marketing and, and learning about online marketing because we really had to invest in our knowledge in that. Um, online marketing was a huge learning curve for us. Uh, and we, I, I would say I spent you know, $20,000 in courses, mm-hmm. um, not to mention uh, much more money in actually running ads online and mm. trying to figure out and do mistakes and things along those lines with online marketing. So uh, we had this stock in one of our gyms and this was kind of a huge pivot point for us in terms of how we transitioned from having our own activewear label to now being a, a leading uh, global fashion and manufacturing agency. So we haven't kind of spoken about where we are today. Um, so essentially we had this, the, the, the pivoting point was we had a client or one of our gyms who had stock in their reception area Um for months, this stock was sitting there and it was kind of tracking away. We didn't really sell much in there. Mm. It just, just stood there and I would, I would come in every week and be like, change it up and make it look better from a visual merchandising perspective, mm. but it wasn't really moving. Um, and we had the gym owner ask if he could put his logo on our clothing. Um, it was really simple. It was like, I just want to take the stock, the exact same stock. Everybody likes your quality, but I want to put my own logo on it. Um, you know, is that okay? And we said no for quite a long time. And then I thought, you know what? Let's just say yes. So mm. why don't we just co-brand and, and kind of go SCFU times the gym's name. Um, and we, we so we literally took the exact garments that were mm. from the reception over to a screen printer. We put the gym's logo onto a, onto the garments and then put those same stock back onto the shelves, so to speak, mm. at the gym. Within a week, they were all sold out. Um, and that was mind-blowing for me. It was absolutely mind-blowing and such a huge moment in our lives because this apparel that was there for so long that was just kind of tracking along Mm. um and then we just put a different logo or just added another logo to the garment and it sold out was quite mind-blowing for me and it really showed again the power of community so this gym was fantastic at building that community for themselves um and they didn't that community didn't resonate with my logo but they resonated with the gym's logo Mm. so we decided um we had a bit of a pivoting moment. Uh, a number of things happened. One, uh, uh, my wife and I, who were still friends at this stage, decided to kind of, or, or, or something was happening there and we were kind of becoming more than friends. <laughs> so we decided to do a little bit of a trip away to, um, and we went to, to Barcelona in, in Spain and, and sat down and said, okay, well, what is this? What's going on here? Like, what's going on with our friendship? It's not really a friendship anymore. Mm-hmm. What's going on with our business? It's, it's not doing as well as what we thought it mm. would. But this gym thing kind of, Something's got to be there. Mm. And we decided to do a massive pivot. Firstly, we decided to get together officially as a couple. <laughs> um, and then secondly, we decided to pivot and start offering our apparel for people to put their own logos on. And as soon as we did that, it took off. So that was, we went away June, July 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, by September, October, we had a whole bunch of designs, design interns working for us. Um, by December 2015, we officially registered as a new business, um, which was called Sly Active at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, again, another lesson learned, but uh, Sly Active at the time, which is essentially what we are today, Sly, Sly Letica today. Mm-hmm. Um, but December 2015, we officially registered as a business and officially started offering people to print on our apparel. Um, but we then just started cold calling gym. So we realized that going to a business to business model utilized my strengths and my skill sets mm-hmm. as well as the other strengths and skill set. And that was a one I was able to literally cold call every single gym within the vicinity of Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, and go in and visit them and show them our stock, show them what we do, show them how we're cheaper and better, et cetera, et cetera. And it just took off for us. Um, it really did. 
and obviously Yetta's, Yetta's skill set in building our systems and our foundations and our operations were, was fantastic. Um, we then started uh, properly managing our Chinese manufacturers, um, going out there and actually ensuring ethical manufacturing, making sure that the places that we're making clothing are child labour and sweatshop free. Mm-hmm. We would actually physically fly into various countries. We flew into Bangladesh, we flew into China, Hong Kong multiple times, mm-hmm. Taiwan as well, and just it just exploded. So from December 2015 to December 2016, we went from two to four to six to 12 staff. It just went nuts. Mm. Um, and through and through, we kept refining the business model and kept listening to our customers. Um, three years, or I guess three and a half years later, we're Australia's fastest growing scale up. Um, we're number one fa- in the fashion bra- industry and mm-hmm. 84th fastest growing um, startup in Australian Financial Review mm-hmm. in 2018. Yep. Um, it's obviously now 2019. We've gone through a whole other financial year. We've managed to um, double our growth again. So we went from 2.1, I think it was, in 2018 mm-hmm. to 4.3, 2019. So it's been quite a journey. We now have 26 staff. Um, and there's been a number of pivots between December 2015 till now. Um, but mainly it's been about keeping up with ourselves and keeping up with our growth and, and sort of understanding our customers and getting to where we are now. And, and so now the core business is essentially a, a turnkey service mm. for uh, gyms as well as other maybe individual influencers, celebrities, personalities who want to have a kind of fashion yeah. apparel, active wear with their design branding, but you're the one kind of implementing all of the um, supply chain along the way, sourcing material, fulfillment, and yeah. that side of things. So what we realized was our biggest challenge when we started our brand, uh, the SCFU brand, was that there was not one space that we could go to to do everything in one spot. Mm. We were talking to a graphic designer who, and then we were talking to a fashion designer. Then we were talking to a production person and we were speak, trying to get, trying to communicate with uh, factories, whether it was China, Bangladesh, Taiwan mm. was a nightmare. Um, we, we then kind of just had this massive inconsistency across the entire brand. It was so difficult. There was nobody who could help guide us. If we had no fashion experience mm. in the past, there was nobody to really help us. Um, then there was the marketing side of things. There was building the community. There was the online marketing, the websites. It was all so disconnected. Um, even just the design of the garments themselves, Yetta and I so, were so disconnected in the sense that we didn't have the same vision for the brand. We didn't realize it at the time, but in hindsight, my idea was this strong motivational fitness brand. Her idea was m- more of a softer motivational fitness brand. And so we had this messaging that, that said, shut the fuck up. But <laughs> it was written, we had these leggings that had this beautiful cursive writing mm. that said STFU in cursive <laughs> writing. It made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. So all of those lessons we now help um, social media influencers, celebrities, athletes, um, day-to-day people who want to be entrepreneurs and even obviously the gym uh, the gym owners we, uh, generally we work with the larger larger scale sort of multi-location gyms now mm-hmm. uh, because we look at everything from a from a fashion brand perspective not a merchandise perspective um, so now people can come to us they can design their own products we don't have any templated products where we're just putting logos on mm. everything is designed from scratch so they can use their own products their own fabrics their own colors 
everything is for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's obviously naturally evolved from just having our products and you put your logo on it. We've now turned it into a fashion agency and a manufacturing agency. So the idea behind it is if you want to start a brand, you could come to us. We will sit down with you and we'll learn about the ideas that you have. We'll help guide you to refine your customer base and who you're going to be selling. We'll also help guide you to understand how you're going to be selling mm. and then make sure we design the right quality product using the right fabrics without having these tears down down yeah. the back of the leggings <laughs> when you launch. Um, and we've worked with, um, you know, over, over 700 brands from 12 different countries um, and we, we specialise in this space. So we do active and swimwear now uh, and, and this is kind of where we've become and, and what we'd love to do on a day, day-to-day basis. So in the end, you did get to that vision that you had from the start of having an entrepreneurial hub yeah. with all these different people Absolutely. Um, around you and so, so sort of, again, indirectly and in the long run, you, you got to where you were sort of aiming. Well, exactly. So now I get to drive to, um, our office space here in South Yarra, Melbourne, and, and which we, which I, I like to call our little entrepreneur hub, and mm-hmm. and we help people um, with their empires of online businesses. So we basically uh, work day to day to design um, a fashion collection, and then obviously then uh, build a actual brand for the customer, launch that apparel for them, and make sure they're making sales. We don't take any percentage of the sales or anything along those lines. The brands uh, we're a fee for service, so people just pay us where they need us um and we help we help kind of grow and start and scale active whereas when we're brands and so anyone who's aligned with that either again like an athlete a personality a gym a pool a brand who wants a fashion line to go along with that they can come to you and you bring all the rest of the capabilities in order for them to produce that absolutely so we we put at least six to eight full-time staff behind a brand so there's a specific criteria that we will 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 need in order to be able to work with somebody um uh uh, 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 but if they're able to meet that criteria then yeah absolutely the people come to us whether they're a gym whether an influencer a celebrity and we've worked with some amazing names um uh all the way through to an up-and-coming entrepreneur provided they have the budget to be able to uh build a fashion label then we'll be able to do that for them from scratch Okay. And so once you, again, you were sort of trying some different things, you finally got the right, um, what you're doing now, the mm-hmm. right sort of, um, business model, I suppose you'd yeah. say, market. And then you rapidly grew. How was that? The, the good and the bad of that of sudden the- growth. Once you hit the right thing and everything accelerated, what was that like? Well, I think for us, it was really trying to understand what the right thing was for us. It was, it was, a, it was a really good, uh, we needed to understand what the mix was of who our customers are and what our product offering was because the opportunities were so um, massive. We had we could go into any direction we wanted to. Um, what we decided to do is just start listening to our clients. Um, so we would speak to our customers. What 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 are you enjoying about our service? What are you not enjoying? And we kept we kept making changes, and with those changes come a lot of a lot of challenges in terms of processes. Once you make one change in your business, you need to change all of your processes, all of your systems, retrain your staff, make sure your staff are comfortable with changes. So the good thing was was that we were growing. The bad thing was we uh, were were growing too fast. (laughs) And so it was kind of the challenges were really keeping up with ourselves and making sure our staff were able to keep up with our growth and making sure our staff weren't stressed because we were changing so much. Um, so there was a lot of challenges from a uh, people perspective and, and, um, there have been people come and gone working with us here at Stylatica and, um, 
we appreciate every single one of them for the for the um, things that they did during the startups of our, you know of our business mm. as well as uh, you know as recently as six to twelve months ago. These these we continue to pivot. You know, as we grow, uh, I was I was listening to a, a fantastic um, talk recently, and and essentially they were saying in order to grail, to scale and grow, you're essentially breaking your business. So if you're living in a cycle where day to day you come in to purposely break your business so that you can continue to grow, it's going to cause challenges for your staff um, and for yourself, you know, mm. because you're constantly questioning what, what you're actually doing. Um, so that was the bad stuff. The bad stuff was that it was difficult to keep up, difficult to keep um, good people in the business. It was difficult to um, continue to supply a good quality product to our customers because we kept switching who our customers were, were, were. Mm-hmm. and we kept as we grew it meant that this criteria that I had mentioned earlier had to grow um, so when we first started to give you an example our minimum order quantity was 30 units um, now we realized to manufacture 30 units of clothing from a production uh, mass production perspective mm. or I don't really like using that word but from a production perspective um, it's very difficult. The manufacturers are not set up to do mm. low order quantities. It takes the same amount of time to do a million products mm. as it does to do 30, as mm. it is the same amount of people, I should say. So um, manufacturers didn't want to do them. So to maintain quality, we had to slowly shift our criteria from 30 minimums to 50 to what we do today is 150, which is still extremely low. Mm. We've 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 decided that that's a very sweet spot for um, startups who want to begin small, which is the right way to go about it, um, but still maintain quality, still be able to manufacture in ethical f- facilities mm-hmm. versus factories or, or, or manufacturers who want big brands. So mm. we come to them as a big brand and say, hey, we've got you know 150 brands that we would like to work with you on as a factory. We could give you 150 brands right now, but you'll need to provide us with a lower MOQ of 150 units. So it's kind of a fine balance. Um, and sort of growing that, growing or sort of changing that criteria, I should say, meant that there were certain customers that we could no longer work with. So unless our customers grew with us, we almost had to cut them off, mm. which was difficult to do as well. So lots of lots of learning, lots of kind of craziness, I want to say, during that 12 months of December 15 to December 16, kind of midway through 17, um, it was intense. Yeah, so in some ways, so outgrowing some of your early clients, outgrowing some of your early staff, outgrowing some of your suppliers and evolving, like you said, breaking and sort of re- constantly. recreating constantly. Absolutely, and, and it's hard because you, you, know, you want to be able to help the people um, and make sure they grow with you, but at the same time, you've got you've to look at your own business and make hard decisions. Mm. At the, the, the end of the day, if you can't deliver a product to a client in time, then it's a challenge, and so... Uh, the small we realized that the 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 clients that we had to let go we really couldn't fulfill their needs long term mm-hmm. and so we we realized that and and had to let go of them and continue to evolve our business to where we are today which is a essentially a manufacturing agency um but we educate our customers that work with us from day one, how long the process takes, the mm. fact that it's a fashion label, we don't just put logos on people's mm. clothing. That's not what we do. There's plenty of people who could do merchandise in Australia. Mm. We are a um, brand development firm. So we essentially look at your business and t- go, how do we create a fashion label out of this? Um, and then we do that. 
Yeah, and so speaking of fashion, so obviously fashion is a huge industry all over the world and it's changing like every industry is with technology. And, and you're right in the uh, the forefront of this, yeah. being, doing a lot of online stuff, working with a lot of um, online distribution, um, while still, you know, the, the reality is no matter what technology, still manufacturing, dealing with factories, dealing with people, dealing with designs. So how do you see technology changing fashion right now and then maybe even looking forward to the future? What other changes do you see? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we speak about this a lot, particularly we do this on a daily, day-to-day basis. There's really two elements to it. There's the sales and marketing side, so how technology is helping retailers with the sales and marketing of their product. Mm-hmm. But then there's the production and operation side, so the actual manufacturing side and how technology is making changes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's super important to discuss both um, mm-hmm. we'll talk about sales and marketing side first uh, everything is around data-driven ed- ed decisions now mm-hmm. um, particularly I think the advantage of being an online business is that you're able to get significant amount of data about your purchases and the people who are visiting your page from various things like tracking pixels etc uh, Google Analytics and all of these various softwares now that are able to assist you in really understanding who your client is mm-hmm. um, you can then use that information to make educated decisions about what type of uh, designs, you know, what type of colors, what type of size uh, ratios you should, you, you'll be able to bring in. And I think the your typical sort of retailers, you know, the brick and mortar traditional retailers are struggling in that area because they don't have as much data as what your online retailers do. Um, on the flip side, obviously, your brick-and-mortar retailers are, uh, have the advantage of the face-to-face um, customer service. You know, people can try things on, mm-hmm. and so they're not getting as many returns as what your online retailers mm. are. So I think that element technology is really assisting um, both retailers online and offline. And I think what, you, what you'll find is um, the ones who are being successful are implementing it, regardless of whether online or offline, extremely well. So those who are offline are still understanding that that data-driven decisions are really important um, and they're able to then use influencers, et cetera, to drive traffic mm. and collect that data. Um, and then obviously the online retailers are doing pop-up events. So Gymshark is a perfect example of a, you know, it's probably the world's fastest growing activewear brand right now. Mm. They don't have stores. They're traditionally an online retailer, but they do pop-up events to meet their people mm. face-to-face, um, connect with them again, um, bring a crowd to a location, regardless of whether that makes them money or not, they do it because it's what makes their brand different. Um, so it's, about combining the beautiful things of online and offline mm. and turning your business into a sales and marketing machine when it comes to products and really connecting with your community. Um, community is the backbone of everything. So community could be there's various names for community. There's, there's audience, there's customers, your purchases, whatever you want to call it. It's the backbone behind everything and everything you should do is about connecting in and, and adding value to your community. Um, and there's lots of technology now that does that for you. Um, from a production perspective? Just briefly. So, so you mentioned data, obviously, and the, the importance of data. And like you said, even offline retailers using loyalty programs and ways of tracking data. And obviously online has the built-in benefit of often having a lot of data. Was there a decision that you made that was maybe counterintuitive that you thought it's like this, but then when you looked at the data, it was sort of different and that guided something you were doing on the marketing and sales side? Absolutely. I think... Um, I think most decisions you're going to make once you look at data is is probably a bit counterintuitive. It's quite amazing. You have your assumptions, but then when you have look at the data and reality, um, 
you'll be able to see we've just implemented a, a, a form that people need to complete for us. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a mini survey to see if they qualify for our service. But also that form allows us to really see the people that don't buy our product. So it's not just about the people who are buying, it's about the people who are not buying. Mm. Um, and why are they not buying? And do we have a product or a service that are able to service those people who are not buying? Mm. And we found that something like 61% of our visitors um, were not buying. Um, so if you think about that for a moment, that's a lot of people who are not purchasing. Um, we still obviously focus on the people who are purchasing and make sure that we're able to deliver a product for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but now our marketing team are coming up with new innovative products for the people who are not purchasing um, and trying to understand from them why they're not purchasing and what we're able to do for them. Is it just simply a matter of our criteria being too high and they can't meet our minimums mm-hmm. or is it something else in there? So we're trying to now open that communication channel, whether it's through our social media, um, or through emails or surveys or promotions with those people so that we can actually then understand from them why they're not purchasing. And uh, for us, that's, that's, a, that's been huge in our business. I mean, it's majority of the people that visit our site don't purchase, so we need to understand why. Yeah, it goes back to your early customers being the ones that directed you mm. to what you're doing now, but by getting their feedback that they didn't want to buy what you when you had your own line, but they wanted you know their line, and by yeah. listening to them, that data in a sense exactly gave right. you the the business that you have now. And that's essentially what is at the core of our business today is listening to our customers. We have our own assumptions, but we don't let them get in the way of what our customers are telling us. Mm. So it is a bit counterintuitive mm. in the sense that. You almost need to put your own uh, vision goggles aside <laughs> and just listen to what your customers mm. are asking. And then if you're not asking them, if you're not surveying them, if you're not looking at your data, you, you're going you're gonna to miss out on the opportunities. Um, so it's something we do extremely well in our business. Okay. And then swapping to the other side, you said the production, so mm. technology, obviously you still fly and, you know, look at a factory, inspect it, meet the people. Um, can you talk us through a bit about obviously how technology is changing, but also how you picked the places, both the, the countries and the factories to mm. work with? Yeah. Great question. I mean, we no longer work with Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, we no longer work with, um, many of the other countries, India, Pakistan, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, solely focused on China at the moment, mm-hmm. not to say that there are not other countries like um, Vietnam, Taiwan, mm-hmm. that, that would still be great. Um, for us, it's about understanding we are in a technical fashion space. So technical apparel like activewear requires um, the right machinery, the right skill set, the right fabrics to construct a high quality garment mm-hmm. china's the beauty of china is all it's almost it became over the last 20 years the, where everybody went to have things made mm. and so they've had to invest in the skill set of their workforce they've had to invest in the innovative technology to create quality garments uh, out of pure necessity everybody mm. was wanting products from there and it's why you're finding china's price point is slowly increasing because they're not just producing crap Mm. they're producing high quality garments now um we visited that we visited multiple locations we you need to imagine we are approached by factories on a day-to-day basis Mm. to work with them we say no to the majority of them so we have a really strict criteria um uh that our factories need to pass in order to be onboarded into our essentially becoming a manufacturing partner for slyletica that criteria involves ethical manufacturing, and that's a huge umbrella. Um, ethical manufacturing for us is quite simply um, 
uh, uh, child labor and sweatshop free. Mm-hmm. Um, we can then drill down into sustainable, eco-friendly, uh, certif- certified. There's lots of different certifications to go through. So when a customer asks us if our factories are sustainable, well, they can be. We do have that. Uh, we do have some that are eco-friendly and sustainable. When it comes to technology in that mm-hmm. area, um, where I see it moving forward over the sort of 12 or say five years from now is ideally if we want to live in a sustainable and eco-friendly world, we need to have on-demand manufacturing from a fashion perspective. And that is as simple as reducing waste and actually mm-hmm. going, okay, well, the only way you can have on-demand manufacturing is to understand how much you're selling um, specifically. So mm-hmm. say, say we launched a product today, um, that product, you sold 500 units of that particular product. You then place the order for 500 units. You make those units in a timely manner. So it's got to be a matter of weeks, not months. Mm-hmm. And we deliver to the product to the customer. If we can do that as an industry as a whole, um, one is going to reduce a ton of waste. It's going to also um, assist businesses in the sense that they're not investing in inventory that doesn't get sold, which later then gets becomes on sale or, you know, God forbid, it gets burnt mm. <laughs> eventually if they're not selling them. That's, mm. what, that's what's happening in the industry. So technology is a huge driving factor in improving the sustainability of the fashion industry. Um, and if we're able to develop technology over the next sort of five five years or so to deliver on-demand production manufacturing, it would be a huge benefit for for people, the earth, the world, mm. etc. So to get to like the point where books are now, where exactly you can print right. a book on demand, like you said, someone buys it, it yeah, gets printed, printed and then gets sent to them a week later, they've got it and nothing was wasted, no yeah. surplus. And the technology is at the point now, and obviously books are mm-hmm. simpler than uh, clothes, but Absolutely. in the future, that's where you kind of... Uh, hoping or, or you see it already getting I mean, we're, we're, that we, on demand. We like to think that we're just driving that. So mm-hmm. it's it's also about using sustainable fabric. So the technology behind fabrications now is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. So we can literally deliver uh, 100% recycled uh, recycled bottles and fishnets um, uh, fabrications now and make leggings out of them. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. Um What's crazy though is it's more it's more cost effective for a, a factory that's making fabric and get this right this is the true story to purchase water bottles brand new at wholesale rate and recycle them to make the fabric out of them than it is to actually sort through secondhand water bottles and recycle those so it's <laughs> which is insane mm. if you think about it so true story there was this ethical um, label that launched. And um, they used they used recycled fabrics, not realizing that the factory that was making the fabrics were recycling brand new water bottles because mm. it's cheaper. Mm. So that is huge. It's a massive waste of everybody. Yeah, defeating the whole. I mean, I didn't want to get into it. That's it literally were. defeating the whole. <laughs> so you need to be very aware of what's happening and. Um, that's just about going out there, visiting them, making sure the right contracts are in place and, and really caring about your supply chain. Yeah. And, and so obviously you've got clients in different parts of the world. You've got uh, suppliers in different parts of the world. Um, so, so what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? You know, what do you think entrepreneurs, obviously working with a lot of entrepreneurs here, uh, what are they doing well and, and maybe what could they do better? Great question. Uh, look, entrepreneurs, I think it's it's like the rise of the entrepreneurs at the moment, and I think it's really amazing. I think with Instagram and, and all of the social medias now, people are really out there chasing their dreams now more than ever. Uh, it's I think what we do extremely well is is um, uh, actually have the forum and have the discussions where people are 
allowed to go and chase their dream. Mm. You know, it's encouraged now, whereas more and more in the past, it was about going to university and going, you know, getting a job, becoming a doctor, whatever, whatever your parents wanted you to do. Mm. Um, now it's more about self-choice and understanding that, you know, it's your life and you can go out there and do whatever you want, it is that you want to do. Mm. So I think we do extremely well at encouraging each other to go out there and, and follow our dreams and do it early on. Um, I think what we don't do well um, is actually when people were successful celebrate their success. Mm. I think we have a bit of a tall poppy syndrome here in Australia and um, we don't celebrate successful people. Mm. I think it's it's a huge challenge for Australia in general and the Australian community where we're not impressed by successful people. We're almost, we almost look down at successful people mm. as if there's something wrong with them or, or you know, they're a bit of a, excuse my swearing here, but they're a bit of a wanker for going yeah, out there and, yeah. and being successful. Yeah, like, like I imagine some people um, would be judged negatively when they say, like, they're an influencer, then they launch a fashion label, right? Yeah. And then people look down at them, but, you know, they're running a business, they've got fans, they've got customers, they've got other products maybe, you know, makeup, oh, cosmetics, it's... and they've got fashion lines. So in one way they're really successful, you know, ambitious hard-working entrepreneur, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. with building a personal brand or, a, you know, whatever they've got. But another way, people are judging them for, for sure. thinking, why have you got your own fashion? And it's actually insane. Um, and to be honest, from coming from somebody that works day-to-day on the phone to the to influencers constantly, the, the influencers are some of the hardest-working entrepreneurs that I've ever met in my life. They're constantly putting themselves out to, to be judged, mm. which is not difficult, right? It's a lot easier to be on the other side talking shit about somebody mm. as opposed to being vulnerable on a daily basis mm. um they're also um one of the most picky customers um <laughs> when it comes to making sure things are being made ethical mm. making sure things are made qu- of quality mm. they're so they, they're so caring about their own community mm. because these that you have to understand that it's all about community and their community is the most important thing to them so if we deliver a product that's not in line with the community not in line with them personally it's going to flop and not work mm. so we Work like they are more picky than than the standard entrepreneur who wants to come with us and start Mm. an activewear label. So all of these haters that go out there and kind of go and and almost putting these people down for chasing their dreams, Mm. it's quite mind blowing to me. Uh, It should be the complete other way. Mm. You know, we should be celebrating everybody's success, whether whether an influencer, an entrepreneur, a business Mm. owner, or whatever it might be. We should, as a community in Australia, be celebrating Australian entrepreneurs and celebrating. Australian influencers success definitely and we should all be striving to be doing the same yeah and the other irony is some people criticize influencers because they said you know it's just like being a socialite you're just being mm-hmm. famous you're just posting pictures yeah. maybe you're just attractive but then when they actually try and create a business yeah then people sort of criticize the business when that's what they were criticizing in the first place for it's you know it's, it's a, a lose-lose yeah right? lose-lose and the uh, fact is that it's not as simple as going out and being attractive and taking photos mm, yeah like it, it's it's a full-time job generating content Mm. and content is huge at the moment. So, you know, it's, I have all due respect for um, influencers and celebrities and anybody else who's out there trying to do something different. Mm. Um, They've always got my vote of support. Excellent. Um, and, and so you've done a lot of different things, obviously, just not within this business, but also before all different sides of the, the real estate business mm. um, and the other odd jobs. So what advice would you give your sort of 18-year-old self? You know, like you said, sort of 17, 18, you're looking at lots of different paths and obviously now you've tried a lot of different things and yep. having huge success with what you're doing now and interacting with, I imagine, a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what advice would you give knowing what you know now? 
Um, I, I, my advice for my 20-year-old self would be uh, do that five-year exercise that I mentioned, mm-hmm. that five-year plan, and do it um, uh, with the biggest imagination you could possibly do. Uh, don't worry about how you're going to kind of get there in five years' time. Just write down what you expect your life to be like five years from the moment you're doing the exercise. Um, if I did that in my twenties, it would, you know, it, it would be insane. And and the only thing that would that would have really limited me would have been my own imagination. Mm. Um, yeah, like I say, you go as far as you can see, and when you get there, you'll be able to see mm. even further. Um, I would just say try and see beyond what you think you what is possible because we can definitely do uh, a lot in a five-year mm. span um, and then actually review that every three years because mm. your life changes and it's totally okay. Mm. Um, a lot of people kind of get stuck in, the, well, what if I don't like it? you know, five years, I don't know what my life, that's fine. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not your a, life. It's yeah. not a locking contract. It's not a locking contract with yourself. It's exactly yeah, right. And, it's and flexible. It is yeah. 100% flexible. Yeah. And it's these, these tools are designed to serve you. Mm. And if then, if your ideal day is no longer serving you, then change your ideal mm. day. Um, but, you know, have, have some point to work towards. Yeah. yeah. Um, I set a goal early on to to have a million dollars worth of um, uh, real estate by the time I was 26. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so driven in the real estate industry and so driven to make sales and and commissions to be able to Mm. buy property. Um, I don't have any of those properties anymore because we started a business, right? So we had to sell all those properties and continue to invest in our growth. Mm. Um, But the point is that I reached that because because I set my goal Mm. early on. In hindsight, I probably should have said $10 million worth of property, mm. right? Because I probably could have achieved the same thing. Mm. Um, I probably would have been able to achieve that. So five-year goal, definitely write down that ideal day. It's been huge. It's something that we still do now. Um, every sort of three to five years, we look at where we're going in our lives and, and is it the direction that we want to go? We've got a baby. Oh, she's one years old now. So, oh, um, so you know, life changes. Mm. And so we're kind of re-looking at that and going, all right, well, what's the next five years look like? Are we going to have another kid and that sort of stuff? So I guess to, to continue that theme, what does the next five sort of plus years look like currently for yeah. yourself? Obviously, the, like you said, the family and also for Slylatica. I mean, we've set, we've set some crazy stupid goals for our personal journey and mm-hmm. that includes buy, buying private... Uh, islands and mm-hmm. and uh, you know villa in croatia and all these mm-hmm. amazing things that and like i'm saying it's it's you've got to think big and, mm-hmm. and beyond what you think is possible um but from a slightly perspective we also go okay well what do our what do our customers need in five years from now mm-hmm. um and we're seeing a huge trend in the industry at the moment that's shifting from just active wear into active lifestyle and wellness and um, that encompasses body and mind and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking, we're, we're, we're exploring what that looks like from a product perspective um, to be able to offer those products to our customers moving forward over the next five years. So would that be, so stepping out of the fashion active wear into other things <laughs> that your existing customers would buy it, in that lifestyle? It would, yeah, it would be adding additional additional things in that lifestyle arena. So um, we kind of feel as though it's going to shift from just active wear to, I mean, athleisure is the correct terminology mm-hmm. for it. Um, it's now an official dictionary um, okay. item, uh, a word, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, so athleisure is the right Which is terminology. sort of gym clothes you wear when you're not going to the gym sort of? Yeah, like- it's, 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 a, it's become, it's not about going to the gym mm. and, wearing, and wearing leggings. It's, mm. that's, that's gym wear. Mm. Um, we're talking athleisure, which is something that PE Nation is probably driving at the moment in Australia, mm. 
incredibly well. It's it's the street meets the gym meets mm. the you know weekend shopping meets the uh, whatever going to a cafe and just hanging out loungewear you mm. know bath leisure they're all additional things and what we're finding and what we're seeing as a trend in the industry is this will all become turn into wellness and and really about how you know the type of products that help your body like like um compression wear and, mm, and active yep. wear and things but also your mind such as various supplements and natural okay. organic things um it's about turning it into wellness and what we what we coining active lifestyle so if you had an active lifestyle what does that look like what are the products that you have um you know anywhere from eyewear through to sneakers mm. um it's all part of the same industry eventually and would you be retailing that or would you be potentially using the same i mean similar process and mm-hmm. thought process and business model where someone wants you know again sunglasses other things that yep. are designed a certain way and use your contacts and expertise to we're expanding to be able to do that for all of our customers um so over the next uh 12 months even mm-hmm. we'll, you'll find slightly could be able to offer a lot of these products to our client base um and beyond from that we'll also be able to uh, a, a showcase that what we're talking about mm-hmm. in our own retail brands as well. Um, so both to answer your question, we're, yeah. we're doing both, but the next five years will encompass a lot of work to be able to build the right supply base when it comes to these products. Um, but also be able to build the right retail labels so people can, sh- so we can use them as case studies and showcase that this is the right way to do a product, the right way to do uh, business in general and how to generate traffic and, and really use them as case studies for our client base to be able to see and learn from as well. Okay, and with an international focus and Ooh. international oh, definitely. in every direction? Yeah, so we'll have our LA office open in March okay. um, and we're, we're currently looking at the UAE as well as, mm-hmm. a, as a, a huge entrepreneurial space, plenty of influences in the area mm. there as well. Um, so we're looking at setting up a branch office over there too. Um, and, and that's actually in the next 12 to 24 months. Wow. So, so, yeah, both. So increasing, I guess, the products, your existing market, but also increasing the physical footprint and staff and talent and um, client base in those locations as well. Yeah, we like to do all of the above. So mm. um, when we when we looked at growing again, we're going to break our current business and, and we understand mm. that. Actually, our team are now starting to understand that. Yeah, um, uh, which is they great. can't all sit in the same Melbourne office, I guess. Well, That's going to yeah. be the next Well, we have to. Lead, you know, we've, right. got, we've got clients in 12 different countries, yeah. like I've said, and so we want to be able to service them mm. really well. And, and sometimes being in Australia, you're at a bit of a disadvantage yeah. with the time, time differences yeah. and, and just location. Yeah. Um, so expanding into various various locations, doing it the right way. It's not mm. a matter of just, you know, throwing in millions of dollars and, <laughs> and setting up. We, we do everything like we're a startup. And yeah. so we'll go in there, we'll start small, build it up and, and listen to the customers on mm. the ground there and, and, and grow from that. Oh, very exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simon. Any final comments you want to leave the audience with? No, I appreciate your time. I know you've uh, interviewed a lot of successful people and we're very grateful to be part of uh, your podcast. So thank you so much for your time. In terms of the audience, if you're listening to this, you can head over to slyletica.com and see what we do. And we'd we'd love for you to follow us on Instagram and and share um, or just, I guess, share our journey with us. Mm. If you have anything, you can reach out to us um, through our socials or hello at slyletica.com and we'd be happy to help. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. 
feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.